Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. You know, by focusing on the loyalists, is it shows that there were people on the other side that were equally as motivated to defend the crown's authority in the United States, or the future United States, as, as there were patriots, you know, willing to fight for independence. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Weiser talking about the life and death of loyalist Crean Brush. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Weiser, and he'll be telling the tragic story of a loyalist named Crean Brush. Uh, his political rise to fame, and his disastrous fall from grace. This is one of those stories I wish I could tell you had a happy ending, or at least an ending we can kind of square with uh, in the in the historical record, or, or the I guess you could say maybe the tone of the, the journal. But it's a story of a man who, you know, was trying to do what he thought was right based on his values and political beliefs, uh, served the state of New York faithfully uh, in in government before the revolution and tragically ended up taking his own life uh, as a result of the stresses of l- losing, essentially, uh, the American Revolution. It's an important article, uh, and it's worthy uh, of study. I mean, this is a person we should understand uh, and a person whose struggle we should highlight because, you know, they mattered. Um, y- you probably won't see them... Uh, in most, uh, you know, textbooks or popular sort of uh, surveys of the American Revolution, just because there's not enough time for everyone. Uh, but it's an important story, n- nevertheless, and something we at the Journal here uh, are, are pretty proud to publish. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Eric Weiser. Eric Weiser, welcome back. Thanks, Brady. Thanks for having me, and uh, it's a it's a great evening to talk about Irish loyalists. Tell us about your background. Uh, so I grew up on Chicago's northwest side. Uh, today I'm married with a daughter, and I live in a suburb uh, called Arlington Heights um, in Illinois, which is 25 miles northwest of Chicago. I studied history and education at Loyola University and have a little experience uh, teaching high school-level uh, social studies. But I did a career change and studied accounting at DePaul University and became a CPA in 2007. And uh, currently, I work for a product safety company called Underwriters Laboratories. So if you, anything electronic you ever pick up and you turn it over and it has a U and an L in it in a circle, that's uh, it's been tested by Underwriters Laboratories. But I work for them in a finance role. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I saw in in an early 19th century local history of Eastern Vermont, I came across Crean Brush's story, and I thought it was incredibly fascinating. And I had been drawn to loyalists 
uh, through reading through the Loyalist Claims Commission papers, which are actually available online. Um, those papers are, are pretty dramatic. Um, you, you know, you may have read through the pension files for American soldiers or Continental Army militia, um, and they're very insightful into the experiences of, of, you know, of them respectively. But the Loyalist Claims Commission papers are very dramatic because we're talking about a lot of displaced people who are on the losing side. So it's, the stories are very dramatic and uh, usually about uh, individuals' personal odyssey uh, from leaving America and ending up either in Canada or Britain or some other place in the empire. But I found the Loyalist uh, experience pretty fascinating, which I never thought I would. I was very interested in founding fathers and patriots, but um, it's it's been very interesting. Um, and Creenbrush, uh, his story, it's, He's a loyalist who's had a very extreme experience, so it's very, very on the very extreme end of the spectrum. But what's interesting about him is he became a major player in the American Revolution, but also in a sub-conflict uh, that I didn't know about uh, called the New Hampshire Grant Controversy, which, uh, which kind of was at the beginning of the founding of the modern state of Vermont. So it's, it's a very interesting, very interesting individual. Who was Crean Brush? Uh, talk about his early life. Sure. So, so yeah, Crean Brush. Just uh, the name, first of all, is really interesting. The first thing that caught me was the name Crean, and uh, I tried finding out what that means. And from what I could tell, it's Gaelic for heart, uh, which is interesting because a lot of people ended up hating him. But uh, he was he was he's an Irish Protestant. He was born in 1725 in Tyrone County, Ireland which is near the city of Dublin. Uh, he was born to landed gentry, so he was very well off. And just some background on the Brush family. Um, the Brush, the Brushes became set up very nice in Ireland due to uh, Crean's great-grandfather, uh, John Brush, who was a soldier in the uh, Glorious Revolution of 1688, which helped overthrow King James. And the family ended up acquiring uh, estates of people that were on the losing side. Uh, so it's really interesting um, that, uh, that the, the great-grandson Crean ends up in a, uh, in a revolution later on. But Brush himself, he, he was trained as a lawyer. Um, he was married. He married and had a child named Elizabeth. <clears throat> but his wife passes away, and um, he makes a decision to leave his daughter with his sister and brother-in-law to leave for America. Um, so it's not it's not entirely clear, you know, lost in the historical record is exactly who he knew in America. Um, you know, we can only surmise why he was motivated to come to America, um, that he saw grand opportunities, but it's not entirely clear who he who he knew over here. But uh, yeah, so in 1762, as a widower, leaving behind a child and a law career in Ireland, he. Uh, he sails for America and uh, lands in New York. How did Brush become a fixture of New York government? Sure. So just um, quick background. So he, he gets to New York and he gets licensed to practice law in New York. <clears throat> and he practices with another Irish attorney named John Kelly. Uh, so he's, he's practicing law. He's making a living in, in New York. He ends up marrying an affluent woman named Margaret Schoolcraft, who uh, brings to the marriage um, 
her niece um, from from her. It's kind of confusing. Her sister, her, her sister, passes away and leaves a daughter named Francis Montresor. The father basically abandons the child, but Margaret Schoolcraft is basically raising Francis as her own daughter. So she brings <clears throat> this child. Well, she's actually like a young woman at this time to the marriage. So Brush. Come, gets a wife and then inherits another daughter almost immediately. But uh, he, so he practices law for a little bit and then he obtains employment in the deputy secretary of the colony of New York in deputy secretary's office. <clears throat> the person, the deputy secretary is a man by the name of Goldsboro Banyer, who himself had immigrated, but from England and had served through several uh, colonial secretaries and governors. He was a very influential, powerful man, very wealthy man. Uh, and Brush, he becomes a mentor for Brush, and he gets very well connected in New York government uh, through Banyer. And he did exceptional work in that office. And as a result, he was given thousands of acres of land, um, it, which, which set him up for his eventual path. Uh, to infamy. Could you talk about his role in the matter of New Hampshire? <clears throat> sure. So, yeah, generally you'll see it. It's called the New Hampshire Grant Controversy. And this started incubating before Brush even came to America. And so just a little background. So modern day Vermont um, is the spot of the controversy. So we're talking about the area between the Hudson River and Lake Champlain in the West and the Connecticut River in the east. Now, the region is dominated by the Green Mountains, which kind of run through the middle, north to south. And the controversy was that both New York, which was on the western side of the Hudson Lake Champlain, and New Hampshire on the east side of the Connecticut River, they both laid claim to the region. So in 1749, New Hampshire Governor Benning Wentworth gets a head start on New York by making land grants west of the Connecticut River and with that come all kinds of, you know, dozens of new townships. Um, so, um, yeah, it, <laughs> New York, of course, sees this. It gets incredibly upset. And so we have a whole, you know, a whole, a whole battle that's going to happen between New Hampshire and uh, New York. But, but the New York governors start, you know, counter New Hampshire by making land grants of their own. They call them patents, which of course brush ends up with thousands of acres of these. Um, but they were, these land patents were heavily abused by Royal governors. I mean, when I say governors in New York, there was a whole series of them during brush's time. There was just Benning Wentworth and his son, John. So there was only a couple governors in uh, New Hampshire, but there was, there was a rotating door with New York, but they made, you know, the governor's, like augmented their salaries with the fees for the patents. They were given to insiders as bribes and a foundation for cementing ties of patronage. Um, but New York, at some point, they declare the New Hampshire grants invalid and they petition the crown and the crown declares, you know, that New York has supremacy over New Hampshire or over, over the area. But the problem is, is that the crown is not giving any specific orders for evicting the settlers to hold New Hampshire grants in the region. 
And the, the Crown tells New York to stop making grants or creating land patents in the region. And they, they don't, they double down and they just, they just start creating more and more. And then this gets into the issues of the problem of trying to administer an empire over that great a distance to where the crown couldn't even stop New York, the Royal governors themselves from creating land patents. But uh, so, so to counter uh, the New Hampshire governors, New York creates three counties of the new, the new Hampshire grant region. They're called Cumberland, Charlotte, and Gloucester. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the background of, of the New Hampshire grants. Now brush <clears throat> jumps into the conflict by moving to Cumberland County and settling in a town on the Connecticut river called Westminster. Um, he, so he leaves, he leaves the deputy secretary's office. He buys a nice house in Westminster, starts practicing law. And at the same time, the New York assembly is creating governance for this new County, you know, all kinds of regulations for inns and taverns, how roads will be maintained and where court will be held. And Brush's town of Westminster becomes the county seat. And, it, and then Brush becomes a court magistrate. So he, he, he dives right into it by moving into the area east of the Green Mountains, right on the border of New Hampshire. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he's, Brush is elected as a, as a representative to the New York General Assembly from Cumberland County with, in 1773 with a man named Samuel, Samuel Wells of Brattleboro. So he's, he's the first, basically the first representative of this new county in the New York General Assembly. And the General Assembly is the lower house of the New York government. So the capital at this time uh, was not Albany, but it was New York City. And the assembly was in Manhattan in a building that, that was just called City Hall. And in the building was the General Assembly, which was the lower house, the Privy Council, which was the upper house, and the Supreme Court. So he's he's representing Cumberland. He's now in the New York Assembly. Um, and one of his first acts in the Assembly is to obtain money to complete the jail and courthouse in Westminster. And he's also working on or like amending legislation for the governance of, <clears throat> excuse me, of Cumberland. So he's very involved in the, the governance of this creation of this new, this new body politic in this disputed region, way out beyond the, the uh, Green Mountains. He also, along with Philip Schuyler, <laughs> a hero who would be on the opposite side later on, uh, this enormous treatise that um, talks about New York's claim to the region, which goes back to the Duke of York, incredibly old, and uh, that document gets sent to their New York's agent, Parliament Edmund Burke. But uh, yeah, but the problem is, is that violence starts escalating in the New Hampshire grants region when uh, New Hampshire grant holders start harassing New York surveyors and settlers. And the, the, obviously the most prominent, famous of those people is Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys, who cause a lot of disorder. They do property destruction. <clears throat> they harass surveyors. It's real, real nasty business. And Ethan Allen also 
once an attempt by New York to outright purchase the New Hampshire grants from the holders. Now, New York was willing to give a reduced price for them, but Allen blunts that attempt. And uh, <clears throat> New York Governor Lord William Tiran uh, becomes disgusted with Allen and the violence, and Crean Brush jumps right in to it um, and, earns it, and, <laughs> and earns a target on his back by drafting the arrest warrant for Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. What was his relationship like with Ethan Allen? Uh, so he, Alan detested Brush, and after the arrest warrant was written, sent him a threatening letter to him and his co-representative in the assembly, Samuel Wells. I mean, basically threatening violence on them, and also, you know, criticizing them as as you know, sort of you know, spoiled landed gentlemen and interlopers, you know, on. Uh, into an area of land with yeoman farmers, you know, basically representing uh, New York's gentleman elite. He thought he was a crown sink offense. Um, and, uh, you know, he saw him as a man, he's in, the, he's in the assembly, and he's, at the same time, he's a beneficiary of the land patents in the region, but also in the position to influence the governance in the area and influence the politics. So he hated he hated him a great deal. Um, now there was never any the the violence on him never occurred, but uh, he was he was detested by Allen. Describe his personal thoughts on the revolution politically. Where did he fall? So he, yeah he he thought the Russian or excuse me the Russian the revolution was completely illegal and illegitimate and. Um, he actually gave an impassioned speech before the New York General Assembly when it was proposed to send delegates to the Second Continental Congress. Um, he, he voted no. So New York, for the Second Continental Congress, did not send any delegates um, like what we would say legitimately through the legislature. So, um, but yeah, in that speech, he, he laid out really his, his thoughts on it, and that was that the Continental Congress had no basis in the British Constitution. You know, it is true that as Englishmen, they had a right to re- for redress of grievances to the king, you know, and to lobby their parliamentary um, agents. But as far as the United Resistance, an organization representing all the colonies um, that could create non-importation boycotts, was simply illegal to him. And just, it just made no sense. What did the war look like for him? It's a little bit of a different story than we're used to seeing. Yeah, it, it's it's um, yeah, it's that it's not very typical. Now at this time, I mean, he at this time he would have been in his late he would have been about fifty years old. So I mean, this wasn't like a standard conflict, you know, where every soldier's between eighteen and twenty three years old. Um, <clears throat> so I guess he could have enlisted as a loyalist volunteer. But he did. He did ask for a command, and it's really interesting. He asked for troops in order to lead an expedition through the New Hampshire Grant region, which obviously we, we know why that is. He wanted to uh, punish, you know, to, to occupy the region, and uh, you know, maybe wreak vengeance. But um, before that, he, he, you know, after Lexington and Concord 
for all the loyalists of Westminster, where he was from, it became untenable to live there. So he fled. He fled with his wife to British-occupied Boston. So they, the British hadn't left Boston yet. This is still very early in the war. Um, but it appears that his brashness was an asset that the British high command recognized because General Howe in, engages him uh, <laughs> in a property confiscation operation um, just before the evacuation of Boston. So Howe asks Brush to collect cloth materials from merchants in Boston in order to deprive Washington's army uh, when it enters into the town when they leave. And Brush, Brush's job is to give, you know, to category, you know, create inventories, give receipts to the merchants so that they can reclaim the merchandise when the army returns. Uh, Howe has a circular posted throughout throughout Boston telling the merchants to deliver their cloth inventories to Brush at the Hubbard Street Wharf. But secretly, you know, he tells Brush that he has the authority to confiscate by force uh, the goods from anyone that's not complying. Um, now, to do that, Brush gets the assistance of four New York loyalists, one of them, one of whom was a neighbor of his in Westminster, who had actually been beaten by the mob um, and who had, to, who had to flee. So these, some of these loyalists that, that, that were with him had had some terrible experiences. But um, so Brush and his crew, obviously not everybody complied because there were several merchants who were paid a visit by Brush and his men. And, you know, at Bayonet Point and Sword, uh, they had their property confiscated, brought to the sh- you know, ships at the wharf. Um, and the, the merchants themselves complained um, and, and said that, you know, Brush was very offensive, that his crew was very violent. And Brush, of course, disputes this later on. But uh, this earns him <laughs> infamy in the town of Boston. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, this idea of giving, uh, giving the merchants receipts, you know, what, for when they come back, or at least to get compensated if they never see their, their goods again. I mean, it's, it's just, I wonder if, if this was a punishment on Boston merchants by how or a way to do it. Cause it's in- interesting because all the, nearly all the, the merchants who had their goods confiscated were members of the sons of Liberty. Um, so it's, it's, that, that's a very <laughs> interesting part of it. But so eventually, you know, the, the evacuation's going on brush has all has captured all the stuff and he departs on a ship uh, headed for Canada. And, this his luck just completely. I mean, his life turns uh, dramatically. It, I mean, so they're intercepted by an American privateer, and Brush is captured along with all his correspondence, his inventories. Uh, now, a lot of the the goods were on another ship, but some were with with the ship he was on when it was captured. And uh, Brush was taken back to Boston and placed in irons. And he was specifically, uh, <laughs> of all the people that were captured, uh, singled out to be in irons. Um, and so in Boston, he, he's there for a long time. We're talking months, months and months. And things appear to be so bad for him that he writes a detailed will while he's in, 
while he's in prison. This story has a sad ending. Uh, how does this end for Brush? Okay. Yeah, this is, so this is some of what drew me to him, actually, this, this ending. Uh, because it, it's just something I, I haven't really encountered in the war, you know, or even with loyalist experiences. But anyway, so after, after 19 months in prison, Brush escapes. And what's interesting is that there's, there's kind of a couple different versions of the story. The, uh, his, Brush's daughter in England, or excuse me, in Ireland, uh, claims, that, claims that Brush was dressed as a Native American, and that's how he escaped. Uh, the 19th century kind of local history version is, is that he wore his, or that his wife smuggled in some woman's clothes and that he dressed as a woman, you know, appeared probably to be a woman visiting and then escaped. So if there's no, we, we really don't know, you know, what the, truly how he escaped, but, but, but he does. And he escapes to New York city. He goes back to New York but this time, of course, it's a it's an absolute, you know, British military stronghold, um, and he uh, he dies not long after he's he comes back to New York City, and the generally accepted cause of death is suicide, and um, so it's a, it's a pretty harsh ending. Now, the the way he committed suicide or how he died is is kind of in questions, as like his escape. Um, his family members and friends, you know, where there are, when there's written evidence that's still out there, they, it kind of, they don't outright say suicide. Maybe at that time, it was an untoward thing to do to say that somebody killed themselves, you know, at that time to put that in writing. So they kind of imply it. You could also say that, you know, they mentioned the exhaustion that he had, um, you know, from all the, the trial and every, you know, everything he had gone through, with his imprisonment in Boston as a reason for his death, you know, exhaustion and mistreatment. But um, yeah. And then a Boston newspaper, now Boston newspaper said he shot himself. A local legend says that he cut his own throat, which is a curious way to kill oneself. Um, But what's interesting is a a, uh, history on, on Allen that was published recently called Adventing Ethan Allen kind of a it's kind of a revisionist history on Ethan Allen but the two men that wrote it uh, Patrick Duffy and Nicholas Muller present an interesting theory on, on his death suggesting that he may have been killed by by Ethan Allen because at the time that Brush was in New York Allen was a prisoner of war who was free on the streets now he <clears throat> Allen part of his parole terms was he was supposed to stay in New York but he he goes over to Long Island comes back and then he's in prison. He's actually put in prison for breaking his parole. Um, so during the uh, Duffy and Mueller place Allen in prison during Brush's death, but um, they believe that's possible that Allen could have escaped and come back or he could have paid someone uh, because of his hatred for Brush that, you know, he, he could have arranged for his death. And, they sort of back that up because there was a sworn affidavit by one of Brush's neighbors who went to fetch, fetch Brush some firewood, you know, where he was staying. And he came back and this, this, this man uh, swore that he saw Brush, you know, in a pool of blood with his throat cut, um, 
which looks like a murder. I mean, I, 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 it just seems like a curious way to uh, kill oneself, especially when there was, in you know, an area where an army was at and there's firearms everywhere. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really interesting interesting theory. It's, it's very sad, but it, and that's it's a very extreme end of the the, the experiences of loyalists. Um, and then some of the super ironies I just want to mention. And this is where his story is really interesting too. Is that after the war, Ethan Allen. Uh, meets now he's a widow, widower at this point. He meets uh, Brush's stepdaughter Frances, and now Frances is a widow. Her her husband was serving in a Loyalist volunteer battalion. It was killed, or at least died from wounds suffered in battle. So Alan meets Brush's stepdaughter. They fall in love and they get married. And for a time, Alan is obviously through his wife a beneficiary of Brush's estate. <clears throat> which is an incredibly cruel irony. But after that, um, you know, Brush's daughter, Elizabeth, that's in Ireland, his biological daughter, comes to America with her husband, a man named Thomas Norman, to try to recover his estate. And Elizabeth buys out two-thirds, the other two-thirds of Brush's estate from Brush's wife, Margaret, and his stepdaughter, Frances. Um, but they, they don't they don't recover most, you know, his really recover most of his estate, especially the stuff in Vermont. Um, Vermont had leased his land and eventually sold it. And this was a common thing with, with confiscated land of loyalists that uh, confiscated land would be sold um, and the proceeds put into the state, the new state's treasury in order to pay off the war debts that were, that were coming. So, um, Elizabeth was only able to recover some of his land in, that he owned actually in New York proper. Um, so yeah, so Vermont basically for a lot of these people that held New York properties in that New Hampshire grant region paid them cash settlements, uh, which weren't very good, but, or very, you know, very high. But, um, but it's interesting because Elizabeth ends up, you know, she ends up settling in New York uh, with, with Thomas Norman uh, they have kids, you know, the brush family or the, at least not the namesake, but through the daughter ends up being established in the United States. And actually another irony is that brush's grandson, John Norman is a Sergeant in the New York militia and then serves the United States in the war of 1812. So I thought that was a very interesting twist to the story. So it ended up that uh, Prussia's grandson fought for the United States against Great Britain um, in 1812. Eric, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, it I, I think that you know by focusing on the loyalist, you know, as Prussia is an ardent loyalist, is it, is it shows that there were people on the other side that were equally as motivated uh, to defend the crown's authority in the United States or the future United States as, as there were patriots, you know, willing to fight for independence. I mean, they, they, there were people that were willing to see, to see it to the end and, and actually lost their lives and property doing so. Um, and it, it's really interesting is uh, Goldsboro Banyer, his old boss was a loyalist too, but he chose a different path from, from brush. He, he laid low 
and did, and actually wound up doing really good for himself and died of old age in Albany. And Brush couldn't do that. I mean, Banier was able to table his loyalism and lay low and preserve his wealth, whereas Brush and many other loyalists couldn't do that. But they were on the losing side. And I think that um, it's worth noting that the Revolutionary War was really America's first civil war. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think that that by studying loyalists more and more, we, we get a bigger picture for, for that. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, the thing about Crean Brush, he's not, he's not a, a huge figure in, in the American revolution, but there's so many people like him that are not well known, but lived really extraordinary experiences through the, through the war but are obviously overshadowed and didn't leave huge footprints that are frequently written about. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, uh, that's why I think, why I think, uh, his story is worth telling. Eric Weiser. Thanks again. Thanks Brady. It was a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge colonial militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.